Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. last leg of the journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we started off working through chapters 1 through 3 where Paul was constantly giving thanks for what God had done among these people and then we moved into chapters 4 and 5 where Paul gave specific instruction to these people about things like the Lord's return, about sexual purity, about how to live with each other and here we're at the very end and a few weeks ago I described this ending that Paul gives us like a, a shotgun blast. So there's all these different BBs going towards the target that is the local church, and we're taking up these BBs and trying to understand them. So our sermon text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Hear the word of our God. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, we have your word in front of us, and for that we are thankful. We are not confused about what you have for us. We know what your will is. And these four verses are your will for us. And we ask this morning that you would take these four verses and that you would plant them in our hearts. We want to be a people who rejoice in you. We want to be a people who give thanks to you. We want to be a people who seek you in prayer. We want to be a people known for good and not revenge. And so we ask this morning that you would take up these four verses and that by the power of the Spirit, you would plant them in our hearts and that you would so change us that we might resemble these four verses. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So I'm going to take a bit of time this morning to set up our, our four verses. And so here's the, here's the setup. There is something, I think, romantic about thinking about the, lo- the, the persecuted church. So as we think about the persecuted church, we have these romantic thoughts. From, from our limited perspective, we look at the, the persecuted church, they're thrown into trials and troubles, and they're purified. We look at this church, and, and we see them, and we compare our complexities to theirs, and we, we think that their complexities of life are, are taken away, that the distractions of pleasure and profit aren't there for them. And so we, we think that the sins that so often trip us up don't trip them up. For they, because of their many trials and troubles, can live upon God and live upon God alone. For they, because of their suffering, can grow up in Jesus and grow up really fast in Jesus because of their desperate conditions. They just don't meet the same sort of temptations we do. 
I can remember when I was struck first with these romantic thoughts. I was young. I can't remember my exact age, maybe 11 or 12 or so. And I had read through a book called God's Smuggler, and Brother Andrew wrote it. And so this story is it's an amazing story of this man who felt called to do ministry behind the Iron Curtain in, in the Soviet Union. And what he would do is he would take his little VW bug and he would load up his VW bug with Bibles, stashing them in his suitcase and everywhere in his car. And then he would go to the border. And of course, they would check out his car for contraband. And somehow, some way, he never got caught. Sometimes the guards would just look straight at the Bibles, and they were illegal, and they'd say, just go on through. And this man smuggled thousands and thousands of Bibles into behind the closed steel curtain. And throughout this book, it's a really good book, you should read it, he tells story about how he lived upon God's provision and God's provision alone. He sto- told stories about faith and, and taking God at his word again and again. And what struck me the most were the stories he told about giving Christians their first Bibles. And so in every story, there was just joy and amazement when a Christian would receive their their first Bible. They were awestruck with such a gift that they would have the scriptures in their own language for themselves that they could just take home and read. And there were always tears. And above all, there was love in such stories. That Christian loved their Bible, and what they would do with it is they would literally devour that Bible, reading it again and again And again, now here's the question I want to ask. As we think about the persecuted church, why is there this romantic pull? Why is there this draw? Well, one reason I think there's a pull and a draw because we see something in that church, something that's good, true, and noble. There is an attractiveness to simple faith in God. There's an attractiveness to Christian courage and bravery. And so when we see it in people, we're drawn to it. Men and women following Jesus, counting the cost, it's good. And so as we think about the persecuted church, there's something compelling, and that's good, and we should be drawn towards it. But I think if we sit here for a moment and sift our hearts for a bit, there might be something more at work in us than just that. Why the pull? Why the draw? Why the romance? Well, there might be something going on like this. If I lived in the Soviet Union and there were secret police monitoring my movements all of the time, if there was extreme threat and and the danger of imprisonment for following Jesus, if church was limited or perhaps even forbidden, then my life in Jesus, it would look so different, different for the better. Perhaps I would love my Bible like those folks did in Brother Andrew's stories. Perhaps my appetite for Scripture would be so great that I would literally devour my Bible from cover to cover, knowing it, eating, living on it. Perhaps my heart wouldn't be so fickle and distracted as it is all the time now, feasting on such trivial things like Netflix and and YouTube. Perhaps I wouldn't have to deal with all of these petty temptations and and spiritual ineptitudes that my life is, is filled with like prayerlessness and anger and unthankfulness and complaining. Perhaps if my present circumstances were changed, I would be a different man, a different person. Maybe I would have real and true religion planted in my soul. So what's going on here with this? Well, when we think about this romance, there's a temptation that meets us. And the temptation is so simple. It's a temptation of believing that if our circumstances were just changed, our hearts would be changed. Our lives would be changed. And as you think about it, this temptation meets us every day and it meets us in so many different forms. It can take a spiritual bent. 
man, if I just went into full-time ministry, whatever full-time ministry would be, if I spent all of my time serving God's people, then my life would be different. My marriage would be better. All of those reoccurring problems and dysfunctions that I have won't plague me anymore. Or it can have the temptation of a wanderlust feel to it. Man, if I just took that new job in that new city and that new place with all of those new people, man, I could just leave behind all of these problems that I'm dealing with here, I would be a different sort of man, a different sort of woman. It can just be materialistic. And if I just got that house, or if I just got that car, if I just got that new phone, then I would be different. I would be happy. I would be happier than I am now. But here's the problem that we meet in this temptation. It doesn't matter where you go or who you were with or what you happen to be doing or what you get. You're going to drag along with you yourself, your heart, for better or for worse. You might move to a different place, but who comes with you? You come with you. Your heart comes with you. You might change your vocation. You might switch jobs, but, but what happens? Well, you come with you. You might exchange the people in your life, trading them out for new people in your life, but what happens? Your heart is still there, and it's still at work. Now, what Paul does in our four verses is he does this. He pops our romantic bubbles. We might be tempted to think, when we think about the Thessalonians, that we have a people who have moved past the common problems and the common spiritual dysfunctions that we face in, in our lives. And we might be tempted to think this about the Thessalonians because of their spiritual resume. Here are some people who aren't dealing with the things that I have to deal with. Just take a moment and, and review with me their spiritual resume. Who are these Thessalonians? Well, there are people who experienced the dramatic converting power of the Lord, and it was dramatic. Remember what Paul said, chapter 1, verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So here are these people, they were worshiping literally idols, God came, and they stopped and they served God. Or think about this in their spiritual resume, they were a people gripped by the word of the gospel. Paul said, chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was preached and the Spirit worked in such a way that the gospel grabbed hold of these people. Full conviction. Even more as we think about their resume, they were eager workers for Jesus. They were successful evangelists. Chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not say anything. Paul's saying, you guys are so successful, we don't need to go evangelize in your region. And we can add to their resume this, they were immovable in suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the, the Jews. They were persecuted and harassed, but they held to Jesus. And so as we think about the Thessalonians, we have the real deal in front of us. These are people who knew the power of God. They were a people who had tasted the sweetness of the gospel and loved the gospel more than life. They were a people who engaged in ministry and were successful in ministry. There was fruit to their work. And above all, they stayed the course even in the midst of persecution. But now if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at our four verses. 
And I want to think very carefully about the things that Paul tells these Christians with this sort of spiritual resume. So if you have your Bible open, turn with me, look at verse 15. Paul says this, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. And so we know these these Thessalonians were pressed and pushed. They had real enemies. They were persecuted. And Paul was well aware of the temptations, the sorts of temptations that these people were faced with. He was well aware of the temptations that accompany pressing and pushing. It's to do this. It's to press and push back. You struck me, so I'll strike you. You cut me out, I'll cut you out. You took that from me, I'm going to take that from you. So what is interesting here is that Paul doesn't think that these Christians with this spiritual resume are too saintly to be out of the realm of temptation. So what does Paul do in this verse, verse 15? He forbids vengeance. You cannot pay them back. Instead, what do you pay them back with? Not with evil, but you pay them back with good. Paul wants these Christians in suffering to refuse the temptation to revenge and instead show kindness and goodness to these people who are oppressing them. As we think about it, Paul is just taking the words of Jesus and applying them to these people. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. But there's more for us in verse 15 if we take our time. Just listen to it again. Paul says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so the Thessalonians, they must refuse to repay their, their oppressors with evil, evil for evil. We've got that. Instead, they must do good to their oppressors in the midst of persecution. They must do good. But there's more here. Paul takes aim not just at the situation of persecution and oppression, but the church, the inner life of the church. You catch it? Paul says, do good to one another. And Paul uses that phrase exclusively to the Christian body, to the church, namely your brother and sister in Jesus. And here we see the concern of Paul. He knows what can happen in the local church. He knows how insult can be met with insult, slight with slight, accusation with accusation, hurt with hurt. And Paul is concerned here that the Thessalonian church wouldn't devolve into rivalries and disagreements and disputes. And Paul knows that these Christians, even with their spiritual resume, are not immune from such matters as revenge so there's verse 15 let's move down to verse 16 paul commands rejoice always rejoice always so this command takes aim at the center of our personality and it takes aim at the center of our personality and redirects the center of our personality our heart our soul back to god essentially paul is saying this to the thessalonians Brothers, sisters, in Jesus, be happy in God or be glad in God or take joy and pleasure in God and do this always. Now, the reason for Paul's command shouldn't be hard for us to understand. Why does Paul say this? Because joy in God is hard. It's not natural. On our own, according to our own terms and prerogatives, our hearts don't go Godward. They don't rejoice in God. They don't sing to God. Instead, we're like the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust, O Lord. Give me life according to your word. 
And so what does Paul do? Well, he comes to these Thessalonians and he's calling them back to God. He's calling them out of their, their circumstances, their situation, their headspace, their dullness, their dreariness, their stupor, their boredom with God. And he's saying, rejoice in God, go back to God, live with God, have life in God, praise him and enjoy him. Rejoice always, Paul says. And here we see that here's the Thessalonians, these people with this great spiritual resume. They had already tasted so much of God. The Spirit was at work in their midst. And what is Paul saying to them? You must rejoice in God. You must rejoice in God. Go back to God. Verse 17, Paul adds another command to verse 16. He says, pray without ceasing. And we understand what prayer is. Prayer is conversation with the Lord our God. And in prayer, we, we do all sorts of things. We adore God and we, we praise God. We don't only praise God, but we also bring our sins to God. We confess our sins, telling the Lord where we have failed and broken his law and we're seeking forgiveness. And one of the most important parts of prayer is, is this, just asking God for what we need. Father, I need this and this and this. Would you be so pleased as to give it to me, your son, your daughter? But what we might not understand in, in verse 17 is the phrase that Paul tacks on to the command, pray, but pray without ceasing. What does Paul mean? Well, Paul has no psychological marathon in mind that we should always be praying, praying every moment of the day. I mean, that would be impossible. Rather, what Paul desires in this command is constancy in prayer. That the Christian would, would give himself and give himself and give himself and give himself to prayer and not stop in giving himself to prayer. In fact, Paul shows us what this word means because he has modeled it for us in 1 Thessalonians. He has used this word already twice before. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said this. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers. Or chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What is Paul doing in this letter? He is constantly praying for these Thessalonians. He just interrupts the letter again and again with prayer. And this is what Paul wants for these Thessalonians, that they would be interrupting their lives again and again, going Godward in prayer. But here there's difficulty with this command. As we think about it, there are so many different reasons to stop praying. Why do we stop praying? Well, we lose heart. We're going to God with this request again and again and again. And we don't see any movement. We don't feel any traction. We don't see God moving. And so what do we do? We just stop praying for that. And sometimes we just stop praying in, in general because we don't see God answering our prayers. And so we pray and when we lose heart. Sometimes we stop praying because our priorities get out of order. We see something else. Our eye catches on this activity. And so we just go after it. And we think that would be more beneficial for my life. If I just went out and did these things and got these things done. And so what happens is prayer set aside. Or sometimes we just lose an appetite for prayer. We find no sweetness in it. It isn't good to us. It doesn't have a good taste. And so we just stop praying. But here is Paul, and he's writing to these Thessalonians who have experienced so much of God, and he is saying, them, saying this to them, pray without ceasing. 
you must have God dependence. And he calls these Christians back to God, the God who hears and answers and gives his people what they, what they need. We can finally move down to verse 18. As we find our last command, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. So you have to love what Paul does here in verse 18. He gives this command, give thanks. And then what he does is he, he opens wide his arms and he just wraps his arms around the entirety of life. You see what Paul is saying? There's not one aspect of life that this command does not touch. It touches good days and bad days, sickness and health, affliction and, and success, prosperity and poverty. And in each and every circumstance, as Paul wraps his arms around your whole life, he's telling you, you ought to be offering up thanksgiving to God everywhere, all the time. And again, we can see without too much work what Paul is working at here. Give thanks in all circumstances. What is Paul working at? Well, he's taking aim at all the complaining and grumbling that's in our lives. And he is working here with the Thessalonians that this cancer might be evicted from their soul. The Christian is not to spend his days grumpy about his life circumstances. Nor is the Christian to carry on in despondency due to the ordering of life. Rather, Paul commands, in everything, in every single circumstance, the Christian is to lift up his heart, her heart to the Lord, giving thanks to the one who made him and redeemed him and orders all things with his sovereignty for him. And so Paul commands, give thanks in all circumstances. So there's Paul, and he gives us these four commands. He gives them to us, but he first gave them to the Thessalonians. And so what do we see here as we try to connect all of this, my introduction with, the, with this body of commands that Paul gives us? Well, we see this. Even the Thessalonians, this church with this great spiritual resume, had to deal with the normal sins, the normal temptations, the normal spiritual dysfunctions of the Christian life. What is Paul writing to them? He's writing about revenge and petty reprisals. He's writing them concerned about prayerlessness. The Thessalonians dealt with prayerlessness like we do. They dealt with ungratefulness and complaining hearts. He wrote to them concerned about their dead, dry, dull hearts that don't always rejoice in God, and he's concerned about it. We can see further that these Christians, even with their great spiritual resume, needed to be called back to God. In the midst of these commands, Paul is saying something to these Christians. He's saying this, I think. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, you dear Thessalonians, you've experienced so much of the work of God. He converted you. He made you wait for Jesus. He gave you this deep conviction in your soul for the gospel of the Son of God. He has been at work in your midst, and your ministry has been so successful. Yes, you have done so much by the help of God's grace, but hear this, Christians. You must live close to God. You, Thessalonians, there must be life in your soul for God, and you must make sure you have real and true religion for God in your soul, and you must make sure that you cultivate that real and true religion or nothing else matters. That's what Paul's doing with these people as he closes off this letter. And as we think about it, this means something for us, doesn't it? If time travel were possible, even so, and we could go back to the first century and we could, we could plant ourselves in Thessalonica 
We could experience the same things that the Thessalonians did, the converting power of the Lord. We were idol worshipers, and now we worship the true and living God. If we had that deep conviction in our souls of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we saw the success and the fruitfulness of, of ministry like they did, hear this, we would experience the same sins, temptations, and spiritual dysfunctions as they did. We would not be fixed if we could time travel back to the first century and live in Thessalonica with all of these people. We wouldn't escape the desire for revenge or the struggle with prayerlessness or the spiritual dullness and dryness or all the complaining that we're tempted to do. And so what does Paul do for us? Well, he does the same thing that he did for the Thessalonians. He's coming to us in these four verses saying this, Dear Christian, I know you've experienced much of God and and God has blessed much of your ministry, but, but hear this, you too must live close with God. There must be a life, a life in God in, in your soul, liveliness for him. You must make sure there is religion, true religion, planted in your soul, and you must be careful to, to cultivate it, that it would really grow up within you. And that's Paul's concern for us, that we would really live to God, that we would really worship God, that we would really be Christians. So, changing our circumstances won't fix us, what ought we to do? How, how do we fulfill this call that Paul gives us? I want to I give us four directions this morning, four applications so that we might have true religion in our hearts, our souls, that we might find ourselves obeying all of these commands that Paul gives us. So here's the first direction. If you want true religion to grow up in your soul, you first must do this. You must first feel the weight of God's commands. You have to feel the weight of them, and there is a heaviness to them. Listen to Paul. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Paul doesn't limit his scope. He doesn't limit it at all. He doesn't give any exception clauses. He modifies each command with expansive language. He says, always. He says, without ceasing or constantly. He says, in all circumstances. Feel the weight of that. The Christian is always to have joy in God. For the Christian, there should never be a season in life where you go without prayer. There ought to be no situation in which Thanksgiving is absent, where our hearts aren't going Godwards. And as we think about it, Paul is setting the bar high, always, without ceasing, in every circumstance. And we might be tempted to argue with Paul here. Paul, this is really impractical. Don't you know my heart? Don't you know how life works? And we get to be skeptical here a bit with Paul because, Paul, I I don't see how I can always do this. But Paul cuts us off here. He won't let us shrug off these commands saying, this is impractical. Rather, what does he do? Verse 18. He grounds all of his imperatives in this. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does God have for you, Christian? It's this, rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is what God has called you to do. He has made you. He has redeemed you. He is sanctifying you. And he will glorify you all for this reason so that you might fulfill this will. That you might actually do these things. So what should we do with these four verses? Well, the first thing we ought to do is we ought to just take these verses and just sit down with them, just looking at them, 
just pondering the words that Paul gives us. Always. Rejoice always, Christian. We should sit with that verse asking, is that actually me? Do I live that sort of life? And we ought to ponder without ceasing or or constantly, pray constantly or pray without ceasing. Is that how I pray? Or or give thanks in all circumstances. Would, Would my wife or would my children or would my coworkers say, yeah, that's Brad. He gives thanks in all circumstances. Is that you? Is that your life? And so we ought to just first of all sit with all of these commands. And we have to understand there's a great spiritual benefit to this. Often we go throughout life unbothered by God's word and God's commands. We just go through life without God's word hitting us or striking us. But when we sit with God's word and command and we let it sift us and try us and search us, what happens is we get bothered by God's word. It starts to irritate us and stir us up. And this is where true religion starts in the soul is when we get bothered by God's word and we see the discrepancy between our life and what God is calling us to in Jesus. And Paul, I think, wants us to feel the weight of these commands, and that's where we have to start if we want to obey them. We have to feel the weight of them, always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. Is that me? We can add a second direction, and the second direction is this. You must seek God. So we sit with God's word, we hear it, we meditate on it, and because we've sat with God's word, we're bothered by God's word. We see our shortcomings, our failures, and so after we see that, we ought to be seeking out God, because if we're serious about God's word and command, we ought to be serious about seeking out God's help so that we might obey God's word and command. Because the life of obedience is a life of grace, receiving grace from God to do what he has called us to do. So our God doesn't want us just sitting there despondent, looking at these commands. Rather, he wants us to take these commands and turn them into prayers that we might go to him asking for the grace of obedience. For example, we can just turn all of these commands into prayers. Paul says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So what should we pray? We ought to pray something like this, Father, you know my heart. You know how easy it is for me to harbor resentment? You know how easy it is for me to become bitter? You know how I love to pay people back for what they've done? Would you make me like you? Would you make me slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Would you teach me what it means to be long-suffering? Would you give me the heart and mind of Jesus? Would you help me overlook offenses and just push them aside? Would you make me obedient to this command? Or the command, rejoice always. Father, my heart is so slow and so dull. It's hard like a stone. My heart feels so stupid all of the time. Would you please give me the heart of the new covenant? Jesus bled and died for it so that I might have it. Would you give it to me? Make me sensible to your power and your glory, your grace and your majesty that I might actually see you and so then rejoice in you. Would you change my heart so that I might always praise you? Or pray without ceasing. Father, you know how fickle and weak I am. I start praying and then I stop praying. And I stop praying more than I start praying. I grow tired and I quit. I grow discouraged in prayer. Father, would you be pleased to burden my heart 
for prayer. And then when I go to pray, would you be pleased to meet me and make prayer sweet? That I might taste your presence and know your goodness and your kindness. Would you be pleased to make me a man, make me a woman of prayer? That I might fulfill your command, pray constantly or pray without ceasing. Or give thanks in all circumstances. Father, complaints just flow from my lips, and they flow from my lips all of the time. My heart language isn't English. It's really grumbling. I grumble, grumble, grumble. Would you change me and change my heart so that I would receive your providential ordering, that you order my life in this way because you are sovereign over all things, that I would receive it with gladness, that I would offer up thanksgiving to you. Would you replace my moans and my complaints with thanksgiving, and would you plant a grateful heart? within me? Would you make me obedient to this command? And so if we want to grow in these commands, we must turn them into prayers, asking God for what we need to do. And here's the great truth. God is so happy to give us what we ask for. As we pray for these things, God is not going to withhold his grace. He's going to give his grace. And as we pray these things, we'll actually find ourselves being changed as we pray. We'll become thankful. We'll become prayerful. Our hearts will be changed away from revenge towards good. And so we must seek God. Third direction. If you want true religion to grow up in your soul, you must look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just think about the letter of 1 Thessalonians for a moment with me. What has has Paul been doing throughout this whole letter? He has been pointing the Thessalonians and in result us to the Lord Jesus. And he has done this again and again. He has pointed us to the Jesus who died and the Jesus who rose again. And as we come to these commands at the end of his letter, we cannot disconnect them from the person and the work of Jesus. Because in Paul's mind, they're all together. All of these commands are flowing out of the person and work of Jesus. And so we must make sure they are connected to the person and work of Jesus in our minds and in our hearts. So for example, how does this work? Rejoice always. Well, you're at the bottom of the pit, and it's deep, and it's dark there. How do you have joy in God there? Well, you're not going to get joy in God by jumping through a bunch of psychological hula hoops. No, you're going to look, you're going to get joy by this, by looking at the Lord Jesus, specifically at the Lord Jesus who died for you, apprehending this great truth that meets you even in the deepest and darkest place. Hear this. Because of Jesus' death for me, not one drip or drop of wrath will ever touch me. Recognizing this great truth, because of Jesus' death, his death for me in my place, I am forever judgment-proof, knowing that because of his death, I am destined for glory and salvation, and nothing because of his death will keep me from it. All has been paid for. That's how Paul wants us to rejoice always, by connecting it back to the Lord Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. How can you rejoice always? You preach the truth of the gospel into your heart and mind. Jesus died for me. He died for me. And I can rejoice because my greatest problem in this life, eternal death, God's judgment and wrath, has been once and for all solved for me. I can rejoice in this dark place. Or another example. You hear the worst news imaginable, maybe stage four cancer or some news about your child, and Paul's command meets you. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
give thanks in all circumstances. How can you do that? Well, you can only do that if you connect that command to the Lord Jesus and specifically his resurrection from the dead. You can give thanks even in the worst place or the worst news confronting you because your life is not ultimately controlled by that piece of bad news. Rather, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life is controlled by a better piece of news, the best piece of news, a piece of news that swallows up every bad piece of news that could ever meet you. And here is the good news. Jesus rose from the dead. He really did. He rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended to heaven. And Paul tells us in this letter that Jesus will someday return from heaven. He's going to split open the skies and the result of his coming will be the dead in Christ will rise first. That is your truth that you get to live in and apply to your soul. Someday I'm going to rise from the dead. Glory. And when the worst news meets you, you can preach a better piece of news to your mind. Jesus rose from the dead, and because I'm in Jesus, I too will rise from the dead. The skies will be split, and Jesus in his full glory will come, and he will come for me. And as Paul tells us, you will live with him forever. You shall have him forever. And so if you want to obey these commands, you have to look to the gospel of Jesus and connect these commands always to Jesus and his person and work, because that is the power of these commands. If you just look at these commands devoid of Jesus, there is no power, there is no life in them, but only when you connect them to Jesus can these commands actually change you. When you connect them, you can actually obey them, because then there's power in them. One more direction, the last one. You have to take action. We're dealing with imperatives. We're dealing with commands. And that means we're not just to understand these commands or or memorize them or study them or think about them. Paul wrote these commands to the Thessalonians that they might actually do them and live in them and obey them. And, And that's for us this morning as well. Here are these commands. Refuse revenge. Do good. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. Always, in every circumstance, without ceasing, constantly. This is God's will for you. So brother and sister in Jesus, you have Jesus. He is your Savior. You have God as your Father, and he is giving you you grace. And he's given the word so that he might wake you up and instruct you. So what do you need to do? You need to do it. Here's God's will for you today. Rejoice today and give thanks today and pray today. And refuse revenge today. Instead, do good. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Even more, we're so thankful for Jesus. That we belong to him and that we are in him. And Father, we want these commands to take root in our life. We want to obey them. We want to be a people who rejoice and give thanks and pray, people who refuse revenge and instead do good. And so you know our hearts. You've been dealing with us. And so we ask, would you make us feel the weight of your commands? Would you meet us with grace? Would you point us to Jesus that we might find in him all that we need? And would you move us to action that we might be an obedient people today? Be pleased to do this. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.